Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' seventh letter to the seven churches, and this one written to the church of Laodicea. We'll pick it up in verse 14. I'll read through, and then we'll study it together. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. And so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are instead wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Laodicea was located about 45 miles southwest of the city of Philadelphia, about 90 miles east of Ephesus. It was one of three cities that were clustered together, each within eyesight of one another. There was Laodicea, the city of Colossae, and also the city of Heropolis. The city of Laodicea was situated upon the river Lycus, which was fed by the Meander River. And as a result, the city of Laodicea controlled the commerce that passed along that river from the inland portion of Asia Minor, Turkey today, all the way to the sea coast. It was also situated at the junction of three great roads that crossed ancient Asia Minor. And since roads in those days were essentially trade routes, they were also in control of a tremendous amount of the trade that passed through the ancient world. And so because of its location, because of the commerce that passed through it, the merchandise, the wealth that passed through it, it became a center for commerce and a center, an administrative center in the Roman Empire. It has four characteristics that are important to know about it historically to understand what Jesus is saying in this letter. The city of Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city filled with very, very, very wealthy people. In fact, we're told, uh, according to historians, that in 60 AD, when the city was devastated by a great earthquake, the government of Rome came to the city and offered to pay for the rebuilding of the city. The city of Laodicea turned away federal funds for the rebuilding 
of the city. They would not receive a dime of government money. They rebuilt the city on their own resources. You take a look at in our country with New Orleans. Imagine New Orleans doing that, but it's not a great wealthy city. But I mean, to have that kind of wealth that you would turn away that kind of help. I mean, most of us would look and say, well, let's take it. I mean, we'll put it in the bank somewhere or something. And nothing wrong with getting some federal money. But they took and they were too rich to accept help from anyone. Perhaps out of good conscience, they couldn't, you know, enjoying the standard of living that they did, take money, or perhaps even out of their own pride, they didn't want to give the appearance of being in need. It was a banking center of the ancient world. It was also a place that was famous for its wool. And they raised a certain kind of sheep there that produced a beautiful black wool that was very, very soft. This wool that was produced and the whole industry that surrounded it, it was famous in the ancient world. And so, like, you know, Columbia jackets and outdoor wear and all this fleece kind of stuff and things. In those days, the garment industry in Laodicea made principally four different garments out of this wool because of the beauty of the color, because of its softness, and they exported these products all around the world. It was in demand all around the world and a great source of income for the city. It was also famous for a medical school that was located there and for a certain eye powder that was produced there, the tephrapergia, and uh, it was uh, kind of a granule that they would put into capsule form in order to ship it around the world also, and they would take those capsules then and grind it down into a powder, apply it to the eyes, and it was said that this powder would cure weak eyes, failing eyes, and of course, anybody over the age of 40 knows that the older you get, the weaker your eyes get. and the more your eyes fail. So there must have been a tremendous market for it in those days to, you know, save the failing eyesight. And it too was a source of tremendous income for the city. Now, they have since then, subsequently, scientists have tested the ground and what was produced and all related to this great eye powder and everything and have found it basically to be dirt. I mean, a little bit better than that, but it's not going to help anybody's eyesight. But you know how all of that kind of things works. It makes money anyway for the desperate, right? And the interesting thing also about the city of Laodicea is that for all of its wealth, its water supply was lousy. During the winter and early spring, the river that ran through, the Lycus River that ran through the city of Laodicea supplied it with good water, but each summer it would dry up. And here's Colossae, a stone's throw away, and Colossae had beautiful, cold, pure spring water as their water source. Heropolis had a water source too, but it was this warm water. So when the water got scarce during the summer months, Laodicea received water not from Colossae but from Heropolis, and it would come by way of this viaduct. So by the time it came into the city of Laodicea, it was very lukewarm and had picked up and been tainted by the viaduct and polluted and had the double distinction of making people sick at times as they would drink it. And Jesus incorporates all these aspects about the city of Laodicea 
into his letter to them. When Jesus writes to the churches and he said, I know thy works, he means it. (laughs) He knows everything about Modesto. He is in awe of the arch. Not really, but I mean, he knows that it's, well, it's lit and it's nice. It's nice. And McHenry Mansion and all these things that we have here. But he's aware of everything about Modesto. I mean, the detail that he knows about a city, knows everything about every single church within this city. Now, if we look at the seven churches as being representative of different periods in church history. For instance, the church of Ephesus representing the first century church, the church of Smyrna, the second and third century church under the persecutions of Rome and so forth. Then the church of Laodicea would represent the overall condition of the church or professing Christianity in the last days or the days immediately prior to the rapture of the church. And sadly enough, Laodicea holds the same distinction that the church of Sardis has and that it is one of only two among the seven that Jesus has not one good thing to say about them. So the church becomes one that we look at more as a model of not how to do things but as a model of things to avoid as a church and avoid in our own personal relationship with the Lord. Number one, their spiritual condition is described in the letter. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus clearly declares them to be lukewarm. And uh, we know what a physical lukewarmness is, don't we? It is something that is neither hot or cold. It's something that's room temperature. It's something that has come down to the level of everything that's around it. It's like everything around it. Spiritual lukewarmness, he describes here as being neither cold toward God, but not being hot toward God either, not being on fire or zealous for Him. It's to be indifferent. It's to go to church. It's to acknowledge that He exists. It's to acknowledge certain things related to Him, but my heart toward Him, my attitude toward Him is one of blots, just lukewarmness. It's to be indifferent of Him. There's no rejection of Him and no hostility, no coldness, but there's no zeal for Him either. So notice Jesus his commentary in verses 15 and 16 regarding their lukewarmness. He says something astonishing here in that he declares that he prefers that they would be hot or cold over being lukewarm. Now we look at that and we say, of course he would prefer them being zestos, being red hot for him in the things of the Lord over being lukewarm. But we can kind of struggle with Jesus saying, I would rather that you were cold to me than be in the lukewarm condition that you're in. But that's exactly what he says to them. And it's interesting that Jesus views this spiritual condition of lukewarmness as being more dangerous in a human being's life than being cold toward God. There is more hope of getting someone who is outright hostile toward God to repent and get right with God, like Paul did on the road to Damascus, than there is for getting a lukewarm person out of their lukewarm condition and to get them right with God. And maybe you've had that experience with a lukewarm person. They're the hardest people in the world to deal with because they have a false sense of their security. 
they feel that as long as I am not hostile toward God, as long as I am not cold toward God, that is satisfactory to God, and that is satisfactory to heaven. So how does Jesus wake them up to the danger of of the lukewarm condition? He has a way. (laughs) Notice what he says in verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Basically what Jesus is saying is that their lukewarm condition makes him sick. Sick to his stomach. Sick at his core. Our stomach is at the core of us, and thus he promises to vomit them out of his mouth. It's one of the strongest statements ascribed to Jesus in the entirety of the Bible. It is one of the most shocking statements made by Jesus in all of the Bible. What is it to vomit? What does it mean to vomit something out of my mouth? Vomiting is the violent expulsion from a body of something that is making that body sick, of something that is dangerous to the health of the body. Have you ever vomited before? I think probably we only allow people 12 years and older in the room, so probably most of us have for one reason or another. How fun was that for you? It's not very fun, is it? And what Jesus is talking about here is not fun for him. He doesn't want to come to a church like this. But there is something about this kind of Christian and this kind of church that is such a danger to the body of Christ as a whole and a danger to its health that it is worth whatever is involved in the process to be rid of it for the health of the larger whole. And so this attitude of lukewarmness makes Jesus sick, and he recognizes it as a danger to his overall body. Now, one of the interesting things about the church at Laodicea is we can look and say, well, maybe they were just lukewarm about everything in life. Maybe they were all, you know, stoics or melancholies or whatever the words are, and so you couldn't get them pumped up about much. That's not true about them. They were very pumped up about money. It wasn't that they couldn't get excited. They could get excited. They were excited about a lot of things, but they couldn't get themselves excited about the Lord. Now, we read something like this, lukewarmness and that kind of a thing, and it's very easy to read it and say, well, this, well, boy, I know just the church that this is all about and, and everything. Never allow it to come close to me. What would you say hot is on a scale of 1 to 10? I'd say 8 to 10. We'll throw seven in, a C. What's cold? Three, two, one would be cold. So what would lukewarm be? Four, five, six, somewhere in there. And if a person finds themselves in that kind of a place, four, five, six, you know, in terms of my zeal and fervor for the Lord, that probably constitutes lukewarmness. And it helps the letter get a little bit closer to me. The point to me of this whole thing that Jesus is communicating, not the sole point, but one of the points that he's making here, is that from the vantage point of heaven, far away from the insane asylum that this world is, from the vantage point of heaven, it is inconceivable to heaven that sinful man would be anything less than zealous toward God. It is, from the vantage point of heaven, an affront. It is an insult 
for a human being, especially one who calls themselves a Christian, to ever grow lukewarm toward the true and the living God. I know it happens. I don't say it to condemn. I'm just trying to give this thing some handles that we can get our hands around. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, look at me, sadly you must. But sinful. I mean, every single one of us is worse than anything we've ever done. And to have a potential of a personal relationship with God, to have the potential to be zealous for that, to be all of the things that are in front of us, and then to treat it with lukewarmness, heaven looks at it and says, we don't get that. We just don't get that up here. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that as a Christian. Because we can grow accustomed to four, five, and six on planet Earth. And I need someone to say something to pop me out of it. Now, notice number two. Not only were they lukewarm, but in verse 17, they were self-deceived. Because you say, Jesus said, this was what they were saying, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know. They were saying one thing, but they didn't know this, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So they're saying one thing, but they are, God knows them to be something else entirely. The difference between their self-assessment of their spirituality and Jesus' assessment of their spirituality, I mean, they're two entirely different things. Their assessment is, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing, so here they are, they're proud, and they're self-satisfied. I mean, here's a group of people that Jesus, I mean, you have to laugh or you cry, right? Jesus looks at this group and says that they literally make him sick to his stomach, spiritually speaking, and yet they're so lifted up in pride that they actually think that they are deeply spiritual people. And Jesus declares them to be what they are, and that is wretched, miserable, poor. It means poor to the point of begging for all their material wealth. They're blind to spiritual things and to their true condition. They're naked, which is always historically to be naked, is to be in a condition that ought to bring shame. And they have no shame related to their spiritual condition. They ought to have been, but they weren't. And they considered themselves to be deeply spiritual. Jesus declares them to be anything but spiritual. And this is no small difference between the two camps. Not only are they not on the same page, they're not in the same book. (laughs) They're not in the same library. (laughs) I mean, this church and then Jesus, I mean, they're operating off of two entirely different definitions of spirituality. And how did this happen? They redefined the marks of spirituality. And they threw away God's definitions of spirituality, and they replaced them with their own. How in the world does that happen? Characteristic number three. I don't think anybody can read this letter to the church at Laodicea and come away with any other conclusion than that this church was absolutely biblically ignorant. They were not a well-taught congregation. Again, notice the two phrases in verse 17. You say... And you do not know. As you read the letter, what they don't know is what anyone would have known if they had even a 
cursory familiarity with the Bible. And so they had ceased to, or maybe they never had, to look into the Bible for a proper self-evaluation related to their spirituality. We need to do that. I love what James talks about the Bible, and one of the images that he gives of the Bible is that it's a mirror. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Every morning I pull it out. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Somebody else comes up in the mirror. When we get up in the morning and we look into a real mirror, what does the mirror do? It's very faithful to tell us our physical condition, isn't it? You know, you've got some big glob of breakfast granola over here. And what do we do? We fix it. And as honest as a physical mirror is to us about our physical condition, the Word of God is to us about our spiritual condition. And it's the only place we can go to get a proper assessment. And they had long ago, apparently, ceased to go to the Word for that kind of an assessment. This is why the teaching of God's Word, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation is so important in a local church because it protects us. It thoroughly furnishes us under every good work, but it protects us from self-deception. It forces us to address everything that's important to God that he puts in this word, and then we address it in the exact proportion to which he addresses it in the mirror. And it keeps us from becoming self-deceived. I think that it's very, very important for us as Christians, especially today, is to understand that teaching from the Bible and teaching the Bible, those are two entirely different things. A person can be taught for 50 years in church from the Bible and never learn the Bible. I know key verses all around the Bible, but I don't know the reason that Colossians was written. I don't know why 1 John was written. I don't know why the Psalms were written. I don't know what the main theme of the book of Proverbs is. So that within, when I hit the different things that are happening in my life and I'm facing these gigantic decisions and I don't know where do I go in the word of God for wisdom, God wants us to know you turn to the book of Proverbs for wisdom. Or I'm in this huge, difficult trial and the emotions and the waves are coming one after another. Where can I go to get some perspective in all of the highs and the lows of life? And I need to know that I can turn to the Psalms for that, where the psalmist processes every kind of emotion known to man and comes through it with a good perspective and then helps us do it. And God wants us as his people to have a working knowledge of the Bible. I like that phrase, a working knowledge of the Bible, where I know what it means. I know what it says. I know where I can turn to. If, you know, I end up on a desert island with just my Bible, I know how to navigate it myself. And that's how God wants us to be able to use the Word of God. They had no working knowledge of the Scriptures. Number four, in terms of what their spiritual characteristics or their characteristics were. In verse 17, they were very, very materialistic. The wealth that's spoken of and riches, and this was their claim to fame. In their own, from their own voice, this is what they were saying. And here you have a church that equated material prosperity with spirituality. 
Of course we're spiritual. Look at how God is blessing us materially. It's as old as 2,000 years ago when the rich young ruler came to Jesus. I mean, there's a catch, ladies. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Wow. (laughs) That's the package. He did have a major flaw, which I'm about to get to. He didn't know God. So, but he comes to Jesus and, you know, what must I do to be saved and all? And Jesus knows that these riches and this whole thing is what's standing between him and God. And God really being the Lord of his life. Go ahead and take, sell everything that you have. Give the proceeds to the poor, he says to him. We don't know what the decision that he made. We know he walked away from Jesus and he was very sad because he was very, very rich. And Jesus talked about how hard it is to the disciples for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were puzzled by that. And they said, well, if a rich man can't get in, then who can get in? Because it's the same thing as the prosperity teaching today, that rich people are rich solely on the basis of God's favor in their life. Now, we do the opposite, don't we? When we're poor, we think God's mad at us, don't we? Sometimes. Ah, he just, why does he hate me and all, all of this kind of thing? And he's doing something, you know, maybe in our life and all. So we come to conclusions about, you know, being on the other end of the spectrum, have just as great a tendency to do on the other end of the spectrum. My wealth is no indicator of my spirituality, nor the wealth of a church. No church can look solely on the basis of finances and its financial picture and come to the conclusion that because it has material resources, that it is spiritual, that it is godly, that it is making a difference for the kingdom of God. It can have tremendous physical resources and not be doing anything of the sort. But what is true of a church is also true of a human being. I can be fabulously wealthy. And I cannot assume that because of that wealth, that all of that has come from God necessarily, and that because I have this, I have his favor, and I'm thus very spiritual, very godly, and making a difference for the kingdom of God. Our spirituality is not measured in terms of material prosperity. I am spiritual to the degree that I look like Jesus, and talk like Jesus, and walk like Jesus, and act like Jesus. in this world. That's a truly spiritual person. And I think it's important to realize that the Bible teaches that covetousness and materialism is a killer of spirituality. When those become the focus of a person's life instead of God, Jesus said, no man can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Paul writes to Timothy and talks about how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And that's one of the problems with the prosperity doctrine today is that it attempts to give to legitimize covetousness and materialism. There's nothing wrong with money. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is amoral. Money is a tool. Money can be used for good. Money can be used for evil. But the point is, I can't consider myself to be spiritual solely on the basis of that. Number five in verse 17, we see that they're a self-consumed church. Again, I don't think you can read this letter without being struck by how self-absorbed the people are in this church. Notice the first word out of their mouth, you know, I, you know, I am rich. And the idea is, I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. 
They're so self-absorbed that Jesus is on the outside of the church knocking to get in, and they don't have the foggiest idea that there's something wrong with that picture. Isn't that amazing? They don't have any idea that church is about God, that church is about Jesus, and not about a place for them to come and worship themselves and then feel good about that because they've been to church. It happens. It can happen very, very easily. I think it's good to be reminded of what the Bible has to say about selfism and about selfishness. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. For whoever desires to save his life, use it for selfish purposes, will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Where selfishness will take me in life, selfism will take me in life, and where Jesus will lead me in life, those are two entirely different places. Those are two entirely different qualities of life, and it is a sure way to miss God's plan for my life. And yet, I can't tell you the pressure that is on leaders in the body of Christ today to make the church about people way, way above about God and worshiping Him and all of that. I like what the Apostle Paul declared concerning this. He said, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I remember quite a few years ago, you might remember when the whole big self-esteem movement was going through the church. It was going through the world, and so it starts to make its way into the church. And we really need to spend some time learning to love ourselves. It's super big, and it's not that it isn't big anymore, it's just been accepted in so much in the church. And it was something like this. Everybody knows that Jesus said that there were two great commandments. There was a lawyer, an expert in the religious law came up to Jesus and said, what's the single greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. He said, that's the first. But he said, the second is like unto it, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, and upon these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. It's almost as if Jesus was anticipating what man would try to do to those two commandments. He said the first commandment, the second commandment, makes no mention of a third. He says upon these two commandments hangs everything, the whole law and the prophets. Well, the church decided to add a third commandment. If I'm to love God with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my soul, and all of my strength, and I'm to love my neighbor as myself, wait a second, what if I don't love myself? How can I love my neighbor as myself if I don't love myself? And so everybody started to try and learn how to love themselves. The problem is, is that self can't be loved enough. <laughs> and we have no problem loving ourselves. We are terminally self-absorbed apart from God. I like how Paul put it in writing to the Ephesians. He said, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We love our flesh. When you get a group picture, who's the first person you look at? You know who you look at. 
And then what do you do? You will declare the picture to be either a good picture or a bad picture based solely upon how you look in it. It can be a terrible picture for everybody else, but you look great, and that's a great picture. That's the one you mail out. We love ourselves plenty. Jesus is saying we need to love our neighbor the way that we already love ourselves. But that whole tendency toward being self-absorbed and selfism is a curse. It's a curse upon man. It's a curse upon the church. And yet here in Laodicea, it's being nurtured, being nurtured. Church is all about me. It's all about worshiping me. It's all about selfishness under the guise of worshiping God. And so we hear sermons that are about, you know, the champion in you. Or six, you know, steps to financial prosperity. Or this thing, it's all about me. And you sit, sometimes you get in an environment or something like that, and you say, is God on a sabbatical or what? Isn't this supposed to be about God? And the whole thing is about me. And that's what was happening in the church of Laodicea. God is just simply being used to legitimize the worship of self. That he's just a genie. He is merely the means to my self-determined, self-dominated ends. Now, number six, in verses 17 and 20, they were a man-centered church rather than a God-centered church. Again, so much so that Jesus is on the outside of the church, knocking to get in, and they simply don't understand that there's anything wrong with that. The word Laodicea means the people rule. And in Laodicea, the people ruled. And they were living down to that name, the rights of the people. In Laodicea, the people ruled the church. God didn't rule the church. It's not that the people didn't, that they don't like church. They do. They just don't want it to be about God. So it's kind of a God-like church. They want it to be less about God and more about me. You tell me how prevalent that is today. That's what's happening in the church of, of Laodicea. To make the church just becomes lukewarm. It just becomes like everything else in the world. The problem is that to the degree that a church is man-centered is the degree to which it is no longer God-centered. To the degree to which the church is now focused on man, it is to that degree that is no longer focused upon God. To the degree that man is talked about in the church and exalted is to the degree to which God is not talked about in the church, nor exalted. You can't worship the both at the same time. And so Laodicea was in that kind of a place. The greatest consideration was in the decisions being made within the church was not what does God want this to be, what would please God, but what do people want and what would please them. Those two ways of looking at things will take a church in two entirely different directions. Now, Jesus then, in verse 14, gives them his self-description. He describes himself in three ways, and again, as we've seen in all of the churches, when he gives them his self-description, he's reminding them of something that they either are ignorant of, related to him, or they've lost sight of and need to be reminded of. He declares to them that he is the amen, and the word amen means so be it, or that's the truth. 
And that's why when we finish our prayers and we say, in Jesus' name, amen, what we're saying is, that's the truth. Everything in my prayer was the truth, Lord. So be it, that's the truth. And the problem in the church of Laodicea is that they are not treating him as the amen, as the truth. They're not treating his word as the truth. They're choosing to take seriously what they want to take seriously, reject what they don't like, and fashion whatever they want to fashion, but they needed to have a change of mind about how they viewed what Jesus had to say. It's all truth. Everything he has said is the truth, and we need to know it. And then we need to live what he's called us to do. And so here they are not taking his truth seriously, and he reminds them of his truthfulness. He declares to them that he's the faithful and true witness, the faithful and true witness of the Father. He is telling them, in essence, if you want to know what the Christian life should look like, look at me. Look at how I lived. Look at how I spoke. Look at what I spoke of as being true spiritual maturity and depth. He is the faithful and true witness of what the Christian life ought to be. And we need to remember that as sometimes things are shifting, definitions are shifting in the body of Christ all around us. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes on Him as the example, the faithful and true witness of what a Christian life ought to look like. And if I'm like him, I will never fall prey to lukewarmness or to materialism or to indifference or to selfism. It just won't happen. Notice number three, he declares that he is the beginning or the origin or the source of the creation of God. Why does he remind them of that? Because in their materialism and in their selfism, they are guilty of abandoning the superior for the inferior. Here they are, they're worshiping themselves. They are created. They are worshiping wealth. It is created. The creator is always greater than the creation, and Jesus is basically telling them, you have replaced the creator of the heavens and the earth with the creation. You've got it completely backwards. And that is a fairly significant step down <laughs> to do that. So he said, it's completely illogical what you have done. You have exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of something that's created, and there's an infinite gulf between the two. And he's reminding them of that, trying to open their eyes up to the foolishness of abandoning the worship of Him for anything. Now notice Jesus' counsel to them in verse 18 and then in verse 19 and, and verse 20. He said in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. So they're a banking center and they possessed tremendous material wealth. But here Jesus speaks about a greater gold. Doesn't just talk about gold, they had gold. Notice he talks about refined gold. That's something of even greater value, greater wealth. And he's talking about the riches that he brings to a person's life. Paul spoke about it. And I love it. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. 
when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. And he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And in that chapter 1 of Ephesians, he goes on to list all of the blessings that are freely ours in Christ. He reminds us that God has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has accepted us. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has sealed us. Heaven is a sure thing for us. And every one of those things, that's the refined gold. Those are the things that make a person truly rich. If a person possesses just one of those things, a person, that person is wealthier than the person who owns the whole world and doesn't possess one of those things. They're priceless. It's the true riches. The true riches are what he brings into a life. When he says, listen, buy from me, it's not that these things can be purchased for money or earned or anything like that. I think the idea is that they would buy it from him at the expense of their pride, at the expense of, of their self-sufficiency. So they're used to people coming to him all the time in Laodicea, coming to the bank, coming to get gold, coming to get wealth, all of this kind of stuff to access wealth that they wouldn't otherwise be able to access. And Jesus said, what you do for people physically, all day, every day, day in and day out, come to me spiritually and let me do that for you. When he says, from me, he's saying that only he can provide it. Notice in verse 18, he said, I counsel you to buy from me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, to be found naked in that culture was, of course, publicly naked, physically naked, was a cause for great shame. It would be today, though I noticed that one of the judges, as I read the paper today in Florida, federal judge, isn't this wonderful, declared that nudity at Daytona Beach in Florida to ban nudity on that beach is unconstitutional because it is a violation of people's First Amendment right. I, what, I mean, if we didn't have the Bible to keep us sane in this nutty world, come on. It's a shame to be... Okay, all right, I'm going to leave that. All kinds of things fill my mind right now, and you don't need to be burdened with them. So here they are. They've made a whole bunch of money with their black wool garments, and they're clothing the whole world, you know, with the physical nakedness of mankind. But there's a shame, Jesus is saying, that is even greater than being caught physically naked in a public place, which is quite a nightmare for people. Yes. <laughs> and the greater shame is to be found spiritually unclothed and naked in the eyes of heaven. And their spiritual nakedness, there for the whole world to see, they should have been ashamed of it, but they weren't. And Jesus is saying, just as the whole world covets your black wool garments, you should have an immeasurably greater desire for the covering spiritually that I provide to your spiritual nakedness. And then in verse 18, he said, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He's referring to that eye powder that they were 
making so much money off of. And so here they had all of this eye powder that they were dealing with the physical blindness of, of other people or their inability to see, but they needed a cure for their spiritual blindness, the anointing that the Holy Spirit gives to our eyes to see spiritual things, to see the world the way that we need to see it. Any Christian who only can use their eyes to see physical things, if that's all that is perceived through their eyes, we're wasting our eyes. We need to see what's happening physically, but then the ability to translate all of that spiritually, see behind what it is that we're seeing and what the Word of God has to say about it. And Jesus is the one that brings that into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And then at verse 19, he calls on them to be zealous. That's the opposite of lukewarm, isn't it? It means to be warm. It carries the idea of being on fire for the Lord and the things of the Lord. And why does he call them to do that? That's the only attitude that is worthy of the Lord. He is worthy of zeal on our part toward him. And then he calls on them in verse 19 that they would repent, that they would have a change of mind about the direction that they're going in life. And as a result of that change in mind, take a change in direction about how they're using their life, how they're spending their life, and get going with what it is that God has called them to. And then in verse 20, it's so beautiful. He calls to each one in the church. He doesn't deal with the church now as a whole. He's talking to individual members of this church. And he makes a call to each one of them as individuals to open the door of their lives to him for fellowship. That they would hear his knock at the door, open the door of their heart, their mind, their life, allow him to come in and dine with them. Here's a church that does not understand that Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's not about church. It's not about services. It's not about staying busy. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's foreign to them because they're doing church completely without him. And they're not missing him in it. And this is his wonderful way of reminding them of that to open that door and he'll come in and he'll sup with them. And to sup was to fellowship deeply with one another. Here you'd, you'd sit down at a table and uh, they put the pita bread out and they put the sauces out and you take a piece from the pita bread and you dip it in the sauce and you eat it. Then I take a piece of the pita bread, I dip it in the same sauce and I eat it. And now we have something in common. That same pita bread and sauce that's in you is now in me. And the Jews viewed eating together as a mystical union that would take place between the two as they ate. That's why a Jew would never eat with a Gentile. They didn't want to have anything in common with a Gentile. And don't think they were being haughty. The Gentiles lived so low that you can't blame them for it. Being a Gentile, I can say that, right? And Jesus is coming to them and said, we'll share from the same loaf. We'll share from the same sauce. I won't be afraid to identify with you. There'll be an even deeper mystical union that will occur than one that happens through, you know, having a food in common. We'll have a relationship in common. It doesn't bust down the door. doesn't threaten them. I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff. And I'm... Says, you open the door and I'll come in 
But if you open the door, this is what will happen. We'll start a very deep, intimate, personal relationship with one another. And that's what he calls on them to do. Now notice in verse 19, he says to them, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now that to me, as many as I love, is the most shocking line in the whole letter. You look at it, sometimes we look and say, now that vomit line, that's a pretty, woo, man, well, how do you top that? It's because of the vomit line that makes this line so strong that in spite of all that they were, all that they weren't, all, 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 Jesus still looks at them and he declares to them, I love you. This is why I'm telling you these things. They need to repent. They need to turn to him. But he loves these people. And he loves them enough to tell them the truth about their condition. And not only when he speaks to them in this way, this is the reason for his rebuke, what happens there. It breathes hope into the situation. And when you're in that kind of a situation, you're reading this letter, they go, all right, he's going to fry me right now. You know, no. You realize, all right, he loves me. He still loves me. Man, I've been a four for so long, (laughs) but he still loves me. There's hope. There must still be hope here. I can turn to him. And there is hope. And not only is there hope, there's still the potential for this church and the members of this church to have an eternal reward to earn the overcomer's reward. And that's what he speaks about in verses 20 and 21. And he says to the overcomer, to the person who hears and obeys Jesus' words in the letter, he said, I will grant to such a one to sit with me on my throne as he also overcame and sat on his father's throne. In other words, he's offering an opportunity to the members of this church of Laodicea to rule with him in cooperation with him to serve with him in ruling during the millennial reign the thousand year reign and beyond and to possess that promise of being able to sit with him on his throne to possess that promise to do that for a thousand years and maybe beyond is worth more than all of the things that they were striving after in this life. And he calls them to it. Jesus overcame how? By just simple obedience to the Word of God. They could overcome the condition that they were in by just simple obedience to the Word of God. Sometimes a person gets in a place like this and they can be in this place for so long they lose hope of getting out of it. How in the world can I get out of it? How can this turn around? I mean, it's going to take months. It's going to take years. It's going to take, it's going to take a millennium for me. No, it doesn't. It just happens by just saying, all right, I'm going to obey this Bible. I'm going to make it my friend. I'm going to make it the mirror of the word. What it says, I'm going to trust God to give me the power of the Holy Spirit to live it and to walk in that. And then as we step out in that power, we will discover that it's there and we walk right out the doors of the church of Laodicea and into the life that God calls us to. It's very simple. There's hope for us tonight. Every single one of us, there's hope. And we walk out by simply obeying him. 
And then he closes the letter, and it's his final exhortation like this in, in the book of Revelation, verse 22, his exhortation for those who have an ear to listen to what the Holy Spirit is speaking. Again, Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation are priceless because they instruct us from Jesus' heart and from his vantage point. They instruct us on what's important to him, what isn't important to him, what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable. And it's very, very valuable insight and instruction that he gives us. And one of the beautiful things as we began the whole series and talking about it, one of the beautiful things about the seven letters is that at any time as the pastor of this church, I can look at them in the light of the church and begin to run this church through the grid, through Ephesus and then Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and on the way through and say, which one of those seven churches are we looking like? Are we camped in the right one? Are we camped in the wrong one? Listen to the warnings, listen to the encouragements based upon where we find ourselves. But what is true of a church is also true of an individual human being. Any time we want to turn to the book of Revelation, read those seven churches, we can know that at any time in our Christian life that one of those seven churches most characterizes my Christian walk. And then I can read that letter, the encouragements, the exhortations, the whatever input he might want to give to us. And I love it. It's a healthy grid force to have to run our lives, to run this church, but especially our lives through that. So we look at Ephesus. We say, have we lost our first love? We look at the church of Smyrna. Are we still willing to do whatever Jesus calls us to do, no matter what the cost to us? We look at the church of Pergamos. Are we compromising God's word in any area of our life? Thyatira, have we allowed anything unbiblical, any false teaching to attach itself to this work or to our own lives? And then on Sardis, as we talk about, you know, the dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Have I left a dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Are we still depending on Him? Philadelphia, are we still giving emphasis to the Word of God? Are we still walking through the open door? Are we serving Him? Are we watching and waiting? And then Laodicea here, have I become lukewarm as I'm waiting for the Lord's return? It's good. It's a good way to test our lives. And I hope in the seven weeks or so that we've gone through them, it helps them to become a friend to us. You can look at it and say, well, I think you're a little more thorough than I wanted you to be. Uh, such is the curse of uh, being Damien Kyle. But the desire for the letters to be well known to us, to be friends to us, to allow them, no matter where God takes us, all around the world as we wait for his return, that these letters would do their needed work in our lives. And so tonight, if we find ourselves under the weight here of Laodicea, that we find ourselves as Christians in a place where we're lukewarm, to just heed Jesus' call to repent of that condition, turn away from it now, and to be zealous. God's here to meet with us to freshly fill us with his Holy Spirit. He's here to 
turn us into repentance back to him to begin to walk in obedience and the life that he has for us. And he'll love to meet with us in that way.